Chapter Two of J. B. Bury's *The Student's Roman Empire*, Part One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. *The Student's Roman Empire*, Part One, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter Two: The Principate. The task which devolved upon Caesar when he had resigned the triumvirate and the proconsular power, which had been conferred on him in 43 BC, was to restore the Republic, and yet place its administration in the hands of one man, to disguise the monarchy which he already possessed, under a constitutional form, to be a second Romulus, without being a king. He still held the tribunician power, which had been given him for life in 36 BC. On January the 16th, in the year of the city 727, three days after Caesar had laid down his extraordinary powers, the Roman Empire formally began. Munatius Plancus on that day proposed in the Senate that the surname Augustus should be conferred on Caesar in recognition of his services to the state. This name did not bestow any political power, but it became perhaps the most distinctive and significant name of the emperor. It suggested religious sanctity and surrounded the son of the deified Julius with a halo of consecration. The actual power on which the empire rested, the Imperium Proconsulare, was conferred upon, or rather renewed for, Augustus, so we may now call him, for a period of ten years, but renewable after that period. This Imperium was of the same kind as that which had been given to Pompeius by the Gabinian and Manilian laws. The Imperator had an exclusive command over the armies and fleet of the Republic, and his province included all the most important frontier provinces. But this Imperium was essentially military, and Rome and Italy were excluded from its sphere. It was therefore insufficient by itself to establish a sovereignty, which was to be practically a restoration of royalty, while it pretended to preserve the Republican constitution. The idea of Augustus, from which his new constitution derived its special character, was to supplement and reinforce the imperium by one of the higher magistracies. His first plan was to combine the proconsular imperium with the consulship. He was consul in 27 BC, and he caused himself to be re-elected to that magistracy each year for the four following years. The consular imperium, which he thus possessed, gave him not only a locus standi in Rome and Italy, but also affected his position in the provinces. For if he only held the proconsular imperium, he was merely on a level legally with other proconsular governors, although his province was far larger than theirs. But as consul, his imperium ranked as superior, maius, over that of the proconsuls. He found, however, that there were drawbacks to this plan. As consul, he had a colleague, whose power was legally equal, and this position was clearly awkward for the head of the state. Moreover, if one consul was perpetual, the number of persons elected to the consulship must be smaller, and consequently there would be fewer men available for those offices which were only filled by men of consular rank. The consuls, too, were regarded as, in a certain way, representative of the Senate, and the Emperor, the child of the democracy, might prefer to be regarded as representative of the people. His thoughts, therefore, turned to the tribunate, which was specially the magistracy of the people. 
but it would have been more awkward to found supremacy in civil affairs on the authority of one of ten tribunes than on the powers of one of two consuls. Accordingly, Augustus fell back on the tribunicia potestas, which he had retained, but so far seems to have made little use of it. In 23 BC he gave up his first tentative plan, and made the tribunicia potestas, instead of the consulship, which he resigned on June 27th, the second pillar of his power. The tribunician power was his for life, but he now made it annual as well as perpetual, and dated from this year the years of his reign. Thus, in a very narrow sense, the empire might be said to have begun in 23 BC. In that year, at least, the constitution of Augustus received its final form. After this year, his eleventh consulship, Augustus held that office only twice, 5 and 2 BC. Subsequent emperors generally assumed it more than once, but it was rather a distinction for the colleague than an advantage for the emperor. But the tribunicia potestas alone was not a sufficient substitute for the consulare imperium which Augustus had surrendered by resigning the consulate. Accordingly, a series of privileges and rights were conferred upon him by special acts in 23 BC and the following years. He received the right of convening the Senate when he chose, and of proposing the first motion at its meetings, ius primae relationis. His proconsular imperium was defined as superior, maius, to that of other proconsuls. He received the right of the twelve fasces in Rome, and of sitting between the consuls, and thus he was equalized with the consuls in external dignity, 19 BC. He probably received too the ius edicendi, that is, the power of issuing magisterial edicts. These rights, conferred upon Augustus by separate acts, were afterwards drawn up in a single form of law by which the Senate and people conferred them on each succeeding emperor. Thus the constitutional position of the emperor rested on three bases, the proconsular imperium, the tribunician potestas, and a special law of investiture with certain other prerogatives. The title imperator expressed only the proconsular and military power of the emperor, the one word which could have expressed the sum of all his functions as head of the state, rex, was just the title which Augustus would on no account have assumed, for by doing so he would have thrown off the republican disguise which was essential to his position. The key to the empire, as Augustus constituted it, is that the emperor was a magistrate, not a monarch. But a word was wanted which, without emphasising any special side of the emperor's power, should indicate his supreme authority in the Republic. Augustus chose the name Princeps to do this informal duty. The name meant the first citizen in the state, Princeps Civitatis, and thus implied at once supremacy and equality, quite in accordance with the spirit of Augustus's constitution. But it did not suggest any definite functions. It was purely a name of courtesy. It must be carefully distinguished from the title Princeps Senatus. The senator who was first on the list of the conscript fathers, and had the right to be asked his opinion first, was called Princeps Senatus, and that position had been assigned to Augustus in 28 BC. But when he or others spoke or wrote of the Princeps, they did not mean Prince of the Senate, but Prince of the Roman Citizens. The empire, as constituted by Augustus, is often called the Principate, 
as opposed to the absolute monarchy into which it developed at a later stage. The Principate is in fact a stage of the Empire, and it might be said that while Augustus founded the Principate, Julius was the true founder of the Empire. According to constitutional theory, the state was still governed under the Principate by the Senate and the people. The people delegated most of its functions to one man, so that the government was divided between the Senate and the man who represented the people. In the course of time the republican forms of the constitution and the magisterial character of the emperor gradually disappeared, but at first they were clearly marked and strictly maintained. The Senate possessed some real power, assemblies of the people were held, consuls, praetors, tribunes and the other magistrates were elected as usual. The Principate was not formally a monarchy, but rather a diarchy, as German writers have called it. The Princeps and the Senate together ruled the state. But the fellowship was an unequal one, for the Emperor, as supreme commander of the armies, had the actual power. The diarchy is a transparent fiction. The chief feature of the constitutional history of the first three centuries of the Empire is the decline of the authority of the Senate and the corresponding growth of the powers of the Princeps, until finally he becomes an absolute monarch. When this comes to pass, the Empire can no longer be described as the Principate. The Princeps was a magistrate. His powers were entrusted to him by the people, and his position was based on the sovereignty of the people. Like any other citizen, he was bound by the laws, and if for any purpose he needed a dispensation from any law, he had to receive such dispensation from the Senate. He could not be the object of a criminal prosecution. This, however, was no special privilege, but merely an application of the general rule that no magistrate, while he is in office, can be called to account by anyone except a superior magistrate. Hence the Princeps, who held office for life, and had no superior, was necessarily exempted from criminal prosecution. If, however, he abdicated or were deposed, he might be tried in the criminal courts. And, as Roman law permitted processes against the dead, it often happened that a princeps was tried in the Senate after his death, and his memory condemned to dishonour, or his acts rescinded. The heavier sentence deprived him of the honour of a public funeral, and abolished the statues and monuments erected in his name, while the lighter sentence removed his name from those emperors to whose acts the magistrates swore when they entered on their office. When a princeps was not condemned, and when his acts were recognised as valid, he received the honour of consecration. The claim to consecration after death was a significant characteristic of the Principate, derived from Caesar the Dictator. He had permitted himself to be worshipped as a god during his lifetime, and though no building was set apart for his worship, his statue was set up in the temples of the gods, and he had a flamen of his own. After his death he was numbered, by a decree of the Senate and Roman people, among the gods of the Roman state, under the name of Divus Julius. His adopted son did not venture to accept divine worship at Rome during his lifetime. He was content to be the son of a god, Divi Filius, and to receive the name Augustus, which implied a certain consecration. But like Romulus, to whom he was fond of comparing himself, he was elevated to the rank of the gods after his death. 
It is worth observing how Augustus softened down the bolder designs of Caesar in this, as in other respects. Caesar would have restored royalty without disguise. Augustus substituted the princeps for the rex. In Rome, Caesar was a god during his lifetime. Augustus, the son of a god while he lived, a god only after death. In one important respect, the principate differed from other magistracies. There was no such thing as designation. The successor to the post could not be appointed until the post was vacant. Hence it follows that, on the death of an emperor, the empire ceased to exist until the election of his successor. The republic was in the hands of the senate and the people during the interim, and the initiative devolved upon the consuls. The principle, the king is dead, long live the king, had no application in the Roman Empire. As a magistracy, the principate was elective and not hereditary. It might be conferred on any citizen by the will of the sovereign people, and even women and children were not disqualified by their sex and age, as in the case of other magistracies. Two, or rather three, acts were necessary for the creation of the princeps. He first received the proconsular imperium, and along with it the name Augustus. Subsequently the tribunician power, and also other rights defined by the special law de imperio. But it must be clearly understood that his position as princeps really depended upon the proconsular imperium, which gave him exclusive command of all the soldiers of the state. Once he receives it, he is emperor. The acquisition of the tribunician power is a consequence of the acquisition of the supreme power, but is not the supreme power itself. The day on which the imperium is conferred, dies imperii, marks the beginning of a new reign. It is important to observe how the proconsular power was conferred on the princeps. It was, theoretically, delegated by the sovereign people, but was never bestowed or confirmed by the people meeting in the comitia. It was always conferred by the senate, which was supposed to act for the people. When the title imperator was first conferred by the soldiers, it required the formal confirmation of the senate, and until the confirmation took place, the candidate selected by the soldiers was a usurper. On the other hand, the imperator named by the senate, although legitimate, had no chance of maintaining his position unless he were also recognised by the soldiers. The position of the new princeps was fully established when he was acknowledged by both the senate and the army. After Augustus, the proconsular power of the princeps was perpetual, and it was free from annuity in any form. The tribunician power, on the other hand, was conferred by the people meeting in comitia. It properly required two separate legal acts, a special law defining the powers to be conferred, and an election of the person on whom they should be conferred. But these acts were combined in one, and a magistrate, probably one of the consuls, brought a rogation before the comitia, both defining the powers and nominating the person. The bill, of course, had to come before the Senate first, and an interval known as the Trinum Nundinum elapsed between the decree of the Senate and the comitia. Hence, under the earlier principate, when such forms were still observed, the assumption of the tribunician power takes place some time after the dies imperii. The tribunician power was conferred for perpetuity, but was formally assumed anew every year, so that the princeps used to count the years of his reign as the years of his tribunician power. 
But though the empire was thus elective, in reality the choice of the new princeps depended on the senate or the army only in the case of revolutions. In settled times the emperors chose their successors, and in their own lifetime caused the objects of their choice to be invested with some of the marks or functions of imperial dignity. It was but natural that each emperor should try to secure the continuance of the empire in his own family. If he had a son, he was sure to choose him as successor, if only a daughter, her husband or one of her children. If he had neither son nor daughter of his own, he usually adopted a near kinsman. Thus the empire, though always theoretically elective, practically tended to become hereditary, and it came to be recognised that near kinship to an emperor founded a reasonable claim to the succession. This feature was present from the very outset, for the founder of the empire himself had first assumed his place on the political stage as the son and heir of Julius, and no one was more determined or strove harder to found a dynasty than Augustus. Augustus assumed other functions and titles, as well as the proconsular imperium and the tribunician potestas, but they had no place in the theory of the imperial constitution. He was named by the Senate, the Knights, and the People, Pater Patriae, 2 BC, and subsequent emperors regularly received this title. He was elected Pontifex Maximus by the people in 12 BC, March the 6th, after the death of Lepidus, who had been allowed to retain that office when he was deprived of his triumviral power. Henceforward the chief pontificate was always held by the emperors, and formed one of their standing titles. Augustus also belonged to other religious colleges. He was not only pontifex, he was also a septemvir, a quindecimvir, and an augur. He was enrolled among the fetiales, the avales, and the tissi. Augustus was not a censor, nor did he as emperor possess the powers of the censor's office, though he sometimes temporarily assumed them. The reason why he refrained from assuming these powers permanently is obvious. It was his aim to preserve the form of a republic, and to maintain the senate as an independent body. One of the chief functions of the censors was to revise the list of senators. They had the power of expunging members from that body and electing new ones. It is clear that if the emperor possessed the rights of a censor, he would have direct control over the senate, and it would no longer be even nominally independent. In 28 BC, as we have seen, Augustus and Agrippa held a census as consuls, by virtue of the censorial power which originally belonged to the consular office. And on two subsequent occasions on which Augustus held a census, once by himself, 8 BC, and once in conjunction with Tiberius, 14 AD, he did not assume the title of censor, but caused consular power to be conferred on him temporarily by the senate. In 22 BC, the people proposed to bestow on Augustus the censorship for life, but he refused the offer, and caused Paulus Aemilius Lepidus and Munatius Plancus to be appointed censors. This was the last occasion on which two private citizens were colleagues in that office. Three times it was proposed to Augustus to undertake as a perpetual office the regulation of laws and manners, morum legumque regimen, but he invariably refused. Such an institution would have been as openly subversive of republican government as royalty or the dictatorship. Nevertheless, some of the functions of the censor, and especially the Kensus Ecutum, 
seem from the very first to have fallen within the competence of the princeps. It should be specially observed that the princeps did not possess consular power, as is sometimes erroneously stated. Occasionally it was decreed to him temporarily for a special purpose, but it did not belong to him as princeps. While the emperor avoided the names rex and dictator, he distinguished himself from ordinary citizens by a peculiar arrangement of his personal name. 1. All the emperors from Augustus to Hadrian, with three exceptions, dropped the name of their gens. 2. They never designated the tribe to which they belonged. 3. Most of them adopted the title imperator as a prinomen. This designation had been first used as a constant title by Caesar the Dictator, being placed immediately after his name and preceding all other titles. Thus it might have been regarded as a second cognomen, and the younger Caesar claimed it as part of his father's name, and, to make this clear, adopted it as a prinomen instead of his own prinomen, Gaius. All the agnate descendants of the Dictator bore the name Caesar, which was a cognomen of the Julian gens. But when the house of the Julian Caesars came to an end on the death of the Emperor Gaius, his successor Claudius assumed the cognomen Caesar, and this example was followed by subsequent dynasties. Thus Caesar came to be a conventional cognomen of the Emperor and his house. Augustus was a title of honour. It did not, like Imperator or Consul, imply an office, and hence an Emperor's wife could receive the title Augusta. But it was not, like Caesar, hereditary. It had to be conferred by the Senate or people. At the same time it was distinctly a cognomen, and it has clung specially to him who first bore it as a personal name. It was always assumed by his successors along with the actual power, and it seemed to express that, while the various parts of the emperor's power were in their nature collegial, there could yet only be one emperor. In much later times, Augustus and Caesar were distinguished as greater and lesser titles. The emperor bore the name Augustus, while he whom the emperor chose to succeed to the throne was a Caesar. Moreover, there might be more than one Augustus, and more than one Caesar. We must carefully distinguish two different uses of imperator in the titulary style of the emperors. One, as a designation of the proconsular imperium, it was placed, as we have already seen, before the name as a prinomen. Two, imp, with a number standing among the titles after the name, meant that he had been greeted as imperator so many times by the soldiers in consequence of victories. Yet the two uses were regarded as closely connected, for the investiture with the proconsular imperium was regarded as the first acquisition of the name imperator, so that on the first victory after his accession, the emperor designated himself as Imperator II. The order of names in the imperial style is worthy of notice. In the case of the early emperors, Caesar comes after the name, for example, Imp Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus. With Vespasian begins a new style, in which Caesar generally precedes the proper cognomen, Thus, Imp Caesar Vespasianus Augustus. Augustus retained its place at the end. The princeps had the right of appearing publicly at all seasons in the purple-edged toga of a magistrate. On the occasion of solemn festivals, he used to wear the purple-gold-broidered toga, 
which was worn by victorious generals in triumphal procession. And although in Italy he did not possess the Imperium Militiae, he had the right to wear the purple paludamentum, purpura, of the Imperator, even in Rome. But this was a privilege of which early emperors seldom availed themselves. The distinctive headdress of the princeps was a laurel wreath. As Imperator he wore the sword, but the sceptre only in triumphal processions. Both in the Senate House and elsewhere he sat on a cella curulis, and he was attended by twelve lictors, like the other chief magistrates. His safety was provided for by a bodyguard, generally consisting of German soldiers, and one cohort of the Praetorian Guards was constantly stationed at his palace. Under the Republic the formula of public oaths was couched in the name of Jupiter and the penates of the Roman people. Caesar the dictator added his own genius, and this fashion was followed under the Principate. The oath was framed in the name of Jupiter, those emperors who had become divine after death, the genius of the reigning emperor, and the penates. The princeps also had the privilege of being included in the vota, or prayers for the welfare of the state, which it was customary to offer up in the first month of every year, and it was regarded as treason to encroach on either of these privileges, to swear by the genius or offer public vows for the safety of any other than the emperor. After the Battle of Actium, the birthday of Augustus had been elevated to a public feast, and hence it became the custom to celebrate publicly the birthday of every reigning emperor, and also the day of his accession. Like other men of distinction, the princeps gave morning receptions, which however differed from those of private persons, in that every person who wished, provided he was of sufficiently high rank, was admitted. It was part of the policy of Augustus to treat men of his own rank as peers, and in social intercourse to behave merely as an aristocrat among fellow aristocrats. There was formerly no such thing as court etiquette, and the emperor's palatium was merely a private house. But the political difference which set the princeps above all his fellow citizens could not fail to have its social consequences, however much Augustus wished to seem a peer among peers. Those persons whom Augustus admitted to the honour of his friendship, and they belonged chiefly to the senatorial, in a few cases to the equestrian ranks, came to form a distinct, though not officially recognised, body, under the name Amici Caesaris, friends of Caesar. From this circle he selected his comites, or companions, the retinue which accompanied him when he travelled in the provinces. The amici were expected to attend the morning receptions, and were greeted with a kiss. They wore a ring with the image of the emperor. They were received in some order of precedence, and gradually they came to be divided into classes according to their intimacy with the emperor, and admission into the circle of amici became a formal act. To lose the possession of a friend of Caesar entailed consequences equivalent to exile. Invitations to dine with the emperor were also probably limited to the amici. Thus, at the very beginning of the Principate, there were the elements of the elaborate system of court ceremonial which was developed in later centuries. The position of the comites was more definitely marked out. They received allowances and had special quarters in the camp. They had also precedence over provincial governors. The distinction of having been a comes of Caesar is often mentioned on inscriptions among official honours. 
it was not lawful under the free commonwealth to set up in any public place the image of a living man. The image of the princeps might be set up anywhere, and there were two cases in which it was obligatory that it should appear, namely in military shrines along with the eagle and the standards, and on coins. Sometimes it appeared on the standards themselves. In regard to coinage, Augustus held fast the royal privilege which had been accorded by the Senate to Caesar in 44 BC, and the right of being represented on the money of the realm was exclusively reserved for the emperor, or those members of the imperial house, on whom he might choose to confer it. End of chapter 2